Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Variant Talks. I am your host, Isaiah Wells, joined by my co-host, Sam Trose. We have a wonderful guest in the studio today. His name is Ken Malat, and he is an independent financial advisor. Well, I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. We've always wanted to be in finance. Yeah, since high school. Yeah, freshman year of high school, probably. Before oh. that, I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> Where do these dreams come from? Uh, <laughs> my, uh, my dad had, um, he had a bunch of Forbes and Fortune magazines around the house all the time. And he okay. had a bunch of business books. So I would just kind of like peruse through that stuff. And the dream was always like, I'll be a CEO of a big company or something. Yes. But he was always very into like investing in stocks. When I was 14, my father opened a brokerage account for me. Okay. And I had like $600 of chore money saved up. So I put it in. And this was like 99. Mm -hmm. So if you recall, that's like the, the height of the dot-com bubble. Yes. So you could buy yes. anything and it would go up. And I didn't know what I was doing. But I bought some stock um, because I saw a commercial for it on TV. So I was like, I'll buy that, <laughs> buy that one. Was it Coca-Cola? No, it was like some unknown. It's a company that's not even around okay. anymore. And I bought it for like two or two bucks a share, two fifty, something like that. And I was like, I was. It was funny. I was in health class and I was checking. Like I asked my teacher, "Can I use your computer? I got to check my stuff." <laughs> <laughs> so it went up to like twenty six bucks. Oh my goodness! And I ended up selling it at like thirteen. So I like you know, I like. It's a good profit. Yeah, six yeah. times my money. Yes. And it's like, I worked so hard for that 600 and all of a sudden I had like 3,600 bucks in yes. there, right? Well, then, the, you know, I bought some other stuff because I thought I was brilliant and I lost, <laughs> lost all of it. <laughs> and then when the dot-com bubble burst, I mean, everything went to zero. Mm -hmm. So that was like, that was the most valuable lesson, you know. That's that a good lesson have. to it's learn at 14. Lesson for very low cost, yeah, right? I mean, because people do that with, with much more money than that. That's like intro to finances right there. You don't, you don't even, yeah. you can just skip that. No class, class can teach you that. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing that can teach you that unless you experience it, right? Because right. people will talk to you to your blue in the face and it's like, it doesn't register until you go through it. Right. So anyway, good lesson there. And so, so now it's funny because like now it's kind of akin to, to that period of time. When okay. you look at, and I won't get too technical, but when you look at a lot of the, the market valuation issues and things that are going on, it's actually very similar to 2000. In some cases, it's worse. Okay. Because 2000, the issues were so concentrated in tech, yes. right? So everything else was fairly valued for the most part. So you could kind of hide out in different industries. Well, today, that those, those issues are kind of throughout the entire market. There's really nowhere to hide as far as the U.S. stock market goes. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's a really valuable lesson that I'm carrying to today, and I think it's going to apply again. And so that, I mean, that really informs a lot of what I do for clients. So in, in regards to what you see is similar uh, to the dot-com uh, bubble to now, um, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. Just a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, when you, when you buy anything, like a house, you know, you, you want to get a fair price. Mm -hmm. And you try to gauge, like, am I paying too much or, you know, am I getting a good deal? Mm -hmm. And so there's different ways to measure that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when you get in a bubble, like when you have a long bull market like we've had now, right? So it's going on nine years and it's been really great returns. You forget about the downside and people kind of get in this mania and uh, they, they forget all the lessons of the past, right? And, and all the traditional value, valuation metrics get thrown out the window. So you'll hear a lot of people say things like, oh, well, it's different this time or it doesn't apply to this because of X, Y, and Z. <laughs> like you hear all these things over and over again. You heard it in 2007, you heard it in 99, and you're hearing it again now. 
But when you look at the most reliable metrics of whether or not the market is expensive or cheap today, some of the measures are, are the most extreme they've ever been. And that includes 1929 before the Great Depression and 1999-2000 for okay. the dot-com bubble. So they're actually exceeding those periods of time. Okay. Now, the issue with using these metrics is that they're not reliable for short periods of time. You can't use them to trade for a month or you know, even a year or two years. They're really you know, five to ten year cycles that you're looking out. So the, the implication is that the returns for the next 10 years will probably be extremely low. And it's not going to be a flat 0% or 1% a year. Usually that's characterized by a sharp drop and then you get a sharp recovery so that 10 years forward from now you look back and say, wow, my returns were flat. But it was, it was anything but, you know, it's because you had a sharp drop. And the more extreme those valuate, the more extreme the prices and the valuations are, right, the more severe that drop becomes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a rubber band that gets stretched to a limit. And so when it snaps back, it's that much more violent. Mm -hmm. And so the key, you know, for younger people, it's not as big of a deal because all our, our biggest asset is our future earnings mm -hmm. power, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you have a few grand in the bank, not a big deal. Like me at 14, losing 600 or $3,000 mm -hmm. makes no difference in my life, really. Mm -hmm. But when you're 60 years old right. and you're a couple of years from retirement and right. you got a million bucks in the bank or a couple million dollars and you've worked you know, for 30 years of your life mm -hmm. and you've sacrificed and you've saved and you put this money away and now the portfolio is probably bigger than it's ever been in your lifetime and you're going to start withdrawing on that money in a couple of years to retire. Well, now if you get a 50, 60% drop and that two million goes to a million or the million goes to 500,000, your life is dramatically changed. Mm -hmm. And so I have clients across the whole age spectrum, but the clients like within five years of retirement or ones who have retired within the past five years, you know, that five to seven year range. So that's like a 14 year period before and after retirement, right? That you have to be really sensitive to risk mm -hmm. and what you're doing in a portfolio. And is that just uh, helping them diversify their funds? Yeah, it's just and getting, I mean, moving more things away from, you know, uh, like uh, um, uh, stocks and into bonds or yeah, yeah, it, secret offshore bank accounts? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't do any of that. <laughs> but, uh, or would your advice be, I, um, I, I suppose your advice probably wouldn't be to just um, continue to stick with the stock even through the no. down. Turn of something Not if like you're that. at that point. And, and here's so to answer your first question, like that's that's what I'm looking at when I compare it to the dot com mm -hmm. bubble is these valuation metrics that are historically reliable. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, you can go for a time without anything happening, but eventually it will come to fruition. So mm -hmm. that's that first question. The second part, the second part is so what do you do? So the old rule of thumb is that you when you start investing at a young age, you're very aggressive, and then you get more conservative gradually over mm -hmm. time. And it's kind of like a linear function, right? So if you're 20, you got 100% mm -hmm. stocks, and by the time you're 80, you have 20% stocks. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of gradually reduce risk over time. The problem with that is that when you're about ready to retire, let's say you're 60, 65, you, a lot of people, at least the ones I've seen, still have, I've seen 60 to 80% stocks in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. So if you even just get an average bear market, you're looking at a 50% drop. So if I have 80% in stocks and a 50% drop, that's a 40% loss to my portfolio. Mm -hmm. That dramatically changes what my retirement it's looks huge. like. Yeah, you know, you go through all your planning and you do your projections and you say, okay, I can retire at 65, no problem. Yeah, not if you lose 40% of the portfolio right. or even 30 mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some people where yeah, they... Going from 1 million yeah. to 500,000 or 600,000. It's a big, big difference. Yeah. Now, there's some people who have, you know, they're not even going to touch their investments because they have pensions and you can afford to take more risk then. Right. You know, it's, it's really for folks who are going to be living on their assets. 
So what you do to, to answer your question the long way around it, so as you get closer to retirement, yeah, the, the, the response is that you have to reduce the stock exposure, but then it's to what? So one is you, you build up some cash. So I'd say have a couple of years of cash typically. And again, this, this does not apply to everyone. This is not investment advice, right? right? Disclosure, right. talk to an advisor, <laughs> right. run their projections. But just generally speaking, how would, what are some things you could do? So you build up your cash reserves. Um, and that advisor would be you, Ken. That would be me. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, my whole objective with clients is to, is to help you become and then remain financially independent okay. through all market cycles, right? So no matter what the market is doing, my, my goal is to make sure that whatever your financial goals are, if we're on track, and is to really make you financially bulletproof. That's my goal. Okay. Right? So I'm not trying to maximize returns by giving you a bunch of risks so that you're jeopardizing everything you've worked for. Okay. I want to cement your goals. That's, that's the idea. And so we're talking about how, what's one way to do that for someone who's near retirement. And so, like I said, you have to reduce stock exposure, and the question is, to what? Mm -hmm. And it's not just any bonds, because there are lots of different types of bonds. Mm -hmm. You have U.S. bonds and foreign bonds, and you have corporate bonds and government bonds and municipal bonds. There's just so many different kinds. Mm -hmm. And they all have different risk profiles. So the issue right now... Which I did not know that. Yeah. You, so. you hear bond stocks, and it's like, okay, all bonds are the same. <laughs> right. yeah, and it's not. It's very different. And to give you an example... In 2008, when we had the great financial crisis, right? Sure. Stocks that year lost 38% okay. in that year, U.S. stocks. U.S. Treasuries, so these are, you know, federal government bonds. Yeah. Different from, you know, Apple's bonds or Microsoft bonds or any other corporate bonds. Okay. So the U.S. government bonds made, you know, 10-year, maybe about, I don't know, don't quote me on this, but maybe 15%, somewhere in that range. Corporate bonds lost maybe 5%. So that's a 20% spread just in the bonds. So yes. all bonds are not created equal. There's a very big difference between safe bonds and riskier bonds. Okay. And then you can even go down the, the spectrum further and you have what's called high yield or junk bonds. So these are bonds for companies that are really uh, heavily indebted. The balance sheet doesn't look good. They're very risky bonds. They yield you more, but they also have more risk. So maybe Sam's know. nodding. Why are you nodding? Yeah. Do you know Do you know about this? Yeah, I do some like investing through a bunch of different things. Um, what I was going to say earlier to your point about investing while you're young, I forget the series that I was watching, whether it was on TV or Netflix or something, but it was looking at um, people that were young in the military going in uh -huh. to the military and how if they were investing what they were getting, even a small amount initially, how much it pays off in the oh, long run. Yeah, yeah. But it's so hard for them to overcome that want to just like, oh man, buy I really want to, yeah, like whatever, buy yeah. a cool new iPod or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> they make iPods anymore. <laughs> yeah. And they'll use that cash and so. draw. <laughs> I don't think They so. make them, but no one buys them, do they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you can keep that some small amount in and keep contributing to it, it's a huge payoff. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, the, power, the miracle of compounding, they mm -hmm. call it, right? I mean, your, your interest begets interest. It's true, it's, you know, you run those projections to your blue in the face and you show people that, you know, that parabolic line that you get, and it takes a lot. I mean, you know, especially guys going in the Army, these are usually younger guys that haven't made much money, and all of a sudden they make pretty good money. And it's all discretionary income, you know, and so they start buying nice trucks, you know, mm -hmm. nice, nice pickups and sports cars or motorcycles or whatever, toys, boats, snowmobiles. <laughs> mm, all the yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't take much to really build up some good value. Do you still do a lot of uh, stock trading and buying yourself? So I mainly use mutual funds and ETFs. Yeah. I do very little individual stocks. Some, tell us why. And so I will. And I do some, <laughs> very few. Um, 
and also will occasionally use options for people. And that's really to hedge some, some different things, but that's a different topic. But why I use mutual funds and ETFs? Um, the idea is that me or anyone else is not going to have the information to really make a great decision that can outperform the market. And so what I mean by that is... So more of like an index fund? You, well, yeah, or? you have millions. And, and I'll, there is some... There's, there's two... Yeah, there's some nuances there, so I'll get okay. to it. Like I said, everything has a nuance. Sure. So, <laughs> so think about Apple. There's, mm-hmm. there's millions of people following Apple stock. And you have analysts who all they do is follow Apple stock. Mm-hmm. They know the balance sheet inside and out. They have access to the executives and the CEO. And so the idea that some guy here, you know, in northeast Wisconsin mm-hmm. is going to have more information that's not already priced into the stock is very, very unlikely. Mm-hmm. And to do that consistently over time is extremely unlikely. Right. So that's why it's, you know, when I use mutual funds, I'll use some index funds for sure, especially in the U.S. market mm-hmm. because it's so widely followed and it's very hard to outperform. Mm-hmm. Now, there's other markets like emerging markets, so like Southeast Asia, Russia, India, China, Brazil. I mean, there's a lot of countries around the world where it's more opaque. And there, I think it makes sense to actually pay a manager who has boots on the ground because I think they do have a leg up on the market and they can outperform whatever their respective index is mm-hmm. they can outperform the market. So you got to pick your spots on where you're, because it costs more to hire a manager mm-hmm. as opposed to just using an index fund, which is almost free. Mm-hmm. Actually, Fidelity just rolled out some free ones recently. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it is free. Right. So it's, but there is a cost to it, but it, at times it makes sense. And you're always looking at what your performance is net of all fees and expenses. And so you just got to pick your spots and you want to keep the overall expenses very low, but there's certainly times when you probably want to hire an active manager who knows what they're doing and has a team in place. So the point is there's different kinds of bonds. And so if someone is concerned about what's coming or a recession or whatever, you know, you may want to, you probably want to be looking at safer bonds. So higher quality bonds or U.S. treasuries. That's what I was trying to get at is that okay. all bonds are not created equal. And so I've seen people that come to me and they say, yeah, I've got, you know, 30% bonds in my portfolio. Right. And I look at it and it's all high yield, like junk bonds. Okay. That's not the same thing because that's going to be highly correlated to stocks. So okay. if stocks fall, those are probably going to fall too. Okay. So that's not, you know, that there is a difference. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to close the loop mm-hmm. on that. My fees. So I'm sure our listeners appreciate that. Yeah, you know, I'd hate to leave something hanging out there yeah. and someone does something that, yeah. So my fees, I, I charge uh, 1% on the first 500000 of assets a year. Okay. And then it's 06 on the next $4.5 million. Okay. And then it's 02 on anything above $5 million. Okay. So, you know, if you had a million-dollar portfolio, it's 0.8% a year. That just gets debited directly from the accounts on a monthly basis okay. in arrears. Mm-hmm. My fees, so my clients get a report from me each quarter, or they can log on to their portal every day. Mm-hmm. There is a line item on the first page that says management fees. So there's a lot of different ways that you can pay advisors, and I'll get to that. Um, some you pay directly, like me, fee only, and others you, play, you pay commissions. Mm-hmm. And so you don't know what you're paying. So mine, are, they're listed right there. That, that's the line item on the report. Here's your portfolio value, interest dividends, capital gains, management fees, mm-hmm. and your net gain. And so that is net of all fees and expenses. Um, and it, it, so it's very transparent. It's pretty helpful. It's very transparent because yeah. most people don't know what they're paying mm-hmm. if you ask them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and that's a great segue into kind of how the industry is broken up. And so within this industry, you've got kind of two branches. You've got the broker world, which they're primarily, or at least can be compensated by commissions. Mm -hmm. So they sell you a mutual fund or they sell you an insurance product and they get a commission on that, Mm -hmm. okay? The other side of the world is uh, the independent fee-only registered investment advisor fiduciary Mm -hmm. model. And that's where the 
the only compensation the advisor gets, like me, is directly from my client. So there is no third party giving me kickbacks or, you know, there's no commissions involved. Um, and that's important because then when I'm giving advice to buy fund A versus fund B or to do, to do this versus that, you it know that I'm, be it, it's in their best interest. Right. Well, it has to be. I'm held to that standard. Right. Um, but two, you know there is no conflict from fees for, for commissions. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of times, you know, not saying everyone is like this, but you can come into a situation where you might get pitched an insurance product you don't need because mm-hmm. it's a nice hefty commission for the person selling it. Mm-hmm. And so you can never be entirely confident that the advice is truly in your best interest or if they're just getting a fat commission on it. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of insurance products, there is big commissions. Mm-hmm. And so there's a heavy incentive to push those things. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many 25-year-olds I've come across with whole life policies. And it, they don't need them <laughs> because that was the only way that insurance agent or broker or whoever could have made any money in that relationship was mm-hmm. just to sell an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm managing for 1% and you've got $10,000, obviously there's no money in it right. because my fees are so low. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, you know, some people are forced to go to, to things that I think probably aren't the greatest solution. So they might be better off going to like a, a Vanguard or a Schwab and just doing something directly, mm-hmm. doing some in, low cost index funds. And Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I'll just say, so my fees, though, the thing that gets lost, you know, we're going in so much nuance here. I hope it's I okay. Okay, <laughs> no, it's great. I hope I'm not making anyone's heads No, I, I think it's great. Okay. So my fees, much of that is offset because the, the investments that I use, the mutual funds that I use, are um, they're what's called institutional mutual funds. So institutional is different than retail. Mm-hmm. So if you go down the street and, and buy a mutual fund or set up an account on your own, mm-hmm you get a retail mutual fund and the expenses are, call it 1%. You get an, that same exact mutual fund, but the institutional share class and the, ex, the expenses might be half a percent. They might be half of what you're paying. So, so that half a percent difference offsets mm-hmm. half my fee or more, depending how big my relationship is. Mm-hmm. The catch is that you can only get, get the institutional share class if you meet a certain minimum. So like PIMCO total return is a bond fund. It's one of the world's largest bond funds. It's a great example because I think you need like $5 million just in that fund to get the institutional share class. Okay. Well, my relationship with Charles Schwab, I can get that minimum waived. So now I can put a client in for ten grand instead of $5 million. And they get the benefit of that lower expense ratio each year because that's an expense that you don't see. Your returns from your mutual funds are net of, they have to have a fee too. And so half my, half my fee is offset. So most prospect, prospects that come in the door, you know, will talk about fees, and they're not used to paying an advisor directly because it's all embedded in the products that have right. been sold. Right. They're like, well, God, I don't know if I can pay, you know, 0.8%. <laughs> right. It's like, no, 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 you're paying. Right now, you're all in expenses. Let's call it our 2% a year. Right. With me, they're going to be about one3 And some, it's even lower. I mean, it just mm-hmm. depends how big the relationship is and... And if we're going to use a lot of index funds, which are very low cost or different things. So that's important because now you're getting the institutional service and the financial planning and the reporting and the transfer, everything that I provide um, for the same or a lower cost than what you're paying now for most cases. Mm -hmm. When should somebody take and move from being at like a Charles Schwab or a Vanguard to actually um, bringing somebody like you, Ken, um, into their corner and saying, yeah, I need a financial advisor? Um, at what dollar amount uh, should they uh, come to you? It's a good question. I mean, so my minimum right now, I have a, I have a hard minimum at 200000 of investable assets. And okay. it's, again, because my 1%, I can't provide all the service I provide profitably for anything less. Right. You know, I have I've had, you know, starting a new business in the beginning, I waived some of that. So mm-hmm. I certainly have some clients um, below that threshold. 
So that's kind of, you know, what I'm looking at for a minimum. But as far as, you know, when you should make that transition from self-managing or, you know, then hiring someone, you know, it's not a dollar amount. It's just a based on, on need, you know. Um, Vanguard is fantastic. You know, you can buy these index funds for like 0.03 basis points, so 0.03%. You know, it's very low cost. The issue where I see most people starting tr to transition from self-management to hiring an advisor is when they're approaching retirement and they need some advice on that. Mm -hmm. You know, so they say, okay, I, I want to retire. I have no idea if we're in a good position. I just want to know that we're on the right track. <laughs> that makes so much sense, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah that's, what most pe that's when people who have self-managed their whole life, and I have mm -hmm. a couple of new clients that did do that, actually, at Vanguard and other places. And it was a matter of like, okay, we're at a point we know we need more help. Mm -hmm. We don't know if we're doing the right thing. We don't have confidence that we're doing the right thing. They're like, we have a lot of money now and we're yeah. scared that we're going to lose yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and I want to retire and can I even retire? Right, you exactly. know, and, and most people that I work with, they're really good savers. They've worked a long time. They're yeah. great savers. They've built up a big nest egg. So, you know, they're, they're very disciplined. And most of the time, they're always worried they don't have enough. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, they, they do have more than enough. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of... How are we going to optimize this so we can preserve your financial independence and yeah, not the type jeopardize of it? You're looking circling back point. to the the first point, mm -hmm. and so that's when most people engage me. But that's not the right. I don't think that's the right answer. the The right answer is probably <laughs> earlier than yeah. that because you yeah. could get to a point where maybe you do think you're okay, and then you're sixty and you hire, and then it's I want to work twenty more yeah, years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh God, I'm way behind, and now it's so late to make an adjustment. You know. Uh, because it's you know it's much harder to make the adjustments later on. Mm -hmm. If you start earlier, the adjustments are very subtle and painless. When you start, if you have to make major adjustments at sixty, they're very painful. Mm -hmm. You know, you're drastically reducing spending or drastically increasing your savings, or you're working you know much longer than you wanted. It's so a it's terrible just, time. To you're, you're playing catch up. Yeah, and you're so <laughs> your habits are so ingrained by that right. point. It's not going to be successful. Well, you have grandkids and all these yeah. other needs. So that's when you start pulling from the offshore bank account. <laughs> yeah, right. That's yeah. when you yeah right or the gold hidden in the basement yeah. or something. So that, yeah, and most people when they retire, I mean, they always say your expenses drop, but they don't because you have all this free time on your hands. What right? what do you is there a what what do you feel like um, the average person needs to retire? It totally depends. So I'll give you an example. You know, in, in Chicago, I worked for a firm, and we worked with even a higher end clientele. And I had I had two clients that well, I had more than two clients, but I had two that had three million dollars each okay. of them. One, we were worried they weren't going to have enough to live. Yes. Right. Well, they were blowing through the money so fast and they were spending so much each year. So for them, three million wasn't enough. And they always were living. They had this constant anxiety about about money, which is terrible. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible way to live. Mm -hmm. C contrast that with this other lady who um, and actually, you know, their their family, the husband's family is from northeast Wisconsin. So maybe that has something to do with it because we're very, you know, we're hey. yay, good conservative people up <laughs> yes. here. And, you know, well, we all have chest freezers and we're stocking. Yeah, it's just a different mentality, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, we're good. We're, yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, no, we, we have enough meat and enough money yeah. put away. It's like, it's all, yeah, yeah we're, it, we're prepared. And they're not driving flashy cars necessarily. Right. But but the mentality about money was very different. So she had $3 million and they had more than enough. She could have lived 100 years yeah. on that. And she never had anxiety about money. And that that is true financial independence. Like, that is true freedom, yes. right? You, you don't have to do anything for anyone at any point yes. it's totally you're just completely free and you have and free from yourself free from debt free from anything and debt can make you a slave to your job or to whatever it is you're doing yes. because you have to service that debt and all the things you own 
And I'm not saying people should live cheap. I'm just saying the, the answer to the question is very different depending on what your lifestyle is. You know, some people can live on a million and retire and be perfectly happy. Others might need 10 million. Okay. Yeah. So there is no one size fits all. So you're talking about kind of this bubble that we're yeah. in and uh, what, what can people kind of be preparing for and do you have any projections uh, that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I can. I mean, I can. I what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> what do we do? You guys just keep making videos yeah. and you'll be fine. Just keep yeah, that's, money away. Yeah, that's our game plan. Yeah. I and mean, we plan on uh, contracting you here in the near future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do have, I mean, like I said, I, I think... I would be surprised if that if for the next 10 years stocks so historically stocks have made what 10% a year that's a number mm-hmm. you always hear I'd be surprised if they make a third of that a year in the next 10 years because of where valuations are right because you're just paying such a high price today which means that if you're paying $90 for $100 in the future your gain is only going to be 10 bucks so if you, you're paying $50 today for $100 in the future, your gain is 50 And so, so the higher price you pay, the lower re- your returns are going to be. So would you say just stockpile the cash right now and then wait for the market to drop and then buy, 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 buy? So, yeah, and so, yeah, and then, like I said, in the interim, it's probably going to be a pretty severe bear market. Yeah. So if the average bear market is a 50% drop, I mean, it, it could be worse. I, and I don't know. And no one knows. Right, and it's not, right, you know, right. This is not a promise or a guarantee. And, of course, the past is no guarantee. The Why don't you know, Ken? <laughs> I wish I did. Is that a good idea, though? Is that a, a sound mindset to have? So um, to so kind of hold you, off on buying right now. Well, and, like for like I said, for younger people, it's not as critical because your future earnings power is the majority of your assets, and you're going to keep you keep buying every month, you keep putting money in your four hundred one k. So your dollar cost averaging throughout the cycle. I you know I'm not going to tell someone who's twenty five to stockpile cash necessarily. Right. If they want to, that's fine. And if they have concern, I mean, it, whatever's up to them. Um, it's hard to give this generic advice until you run the projections. I understand, but yeah. but I mean, so when I run the projections, what I do, this is how I approach it. So a client comes to me, you know, let's say they're fifty-five, and they have a bunch of stock exposure, and they say, okay, I want to retire in five years. In the projections, I will simulate a really bad bear market. I'll I'll basically simulate a fifty or fifty-five percent drop in stocks. Okay, and it could be worse. It may not be as bad, but it could be worse mm-hmm. than that. The Great Depression, you lost eighty-nine percent. You know, in 08, 07, 09, you lost 55. In a dot-com bubble, you lost 50. And these are just broad indexes. Hmm. So, yeah, they can be worse. And everyone says 50%. How can it be that bad? But it's happened many times before. Mm-hmm. And if valuations are more stretched than ever, then it's reasonable to at least, you have to at least include some scenario in your projections where that is a potential outcome. It's not like you have to say, okay, it's guaranteed to happen, but you've got to at least see what happens if you were to get such a severe bear market. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is I say, okay, how does that impact your goals? And how does that impact your retirement? And like I said, for some people, especially up here, we got a lot of you know like factory workers that have pensions still, which mm-hmm. is rare. Mm-hmm. And so for these folks, like I said, you can, you can tolerate some risk because you're using your pension. You're not mm-hmm. tapping into the money. So you have time for that to recover. Mm-hmm. For people who are going to be tapping into their portfolio to live, then, like I said, then that drop makes a difference. And so you start running the projections with these different scenarios and you start backing into what's an appropriate strategy for your unique circumstances, you know. And so then you kind of just back into it that way. So that's why I can't, one, there's all sorts of compliance issues if I just say, oh, you should do this. Right. But two, it's just not good advice, period, because I really don't know your situation. I really need to look at the projections and look at what kind of, you know, investment resources you have, what kind of fixed income resources like Social Security and pension and any annuities or whatever else you got any family inheritance. I mean, there's all sorts of things. 
And so, yeah, it's hard to say exactly. But I, yeah, personally, yeah, I'm, I'm more conservatively positioned than I should be for someone my age. And that's just, that's a, that's a preference. I think that's a good thing, though. I think yeah. that uh, there are so many um, financial advisors that are so aggressive. Um, and I think uh, um, there are a lot of people that could appreciate uh, an advisor like you that's a little bit more um, conservative. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, and I don't even know if that's the right word to take. No, that's the right. That is I, Right now, I am more conservative. Okay. And I will get very aggressive again. So when that market comes down and evaluations get to more reasonable levels, then I will be very aggressive. So it, it, is, it is not like you can't always be pessimistic and you can't always just be you know op- optimistic and everything is great. You have to be realistic based on... Uh, historical analysis and, and reliable metrics. You've got to account for that when you're investing someone's money, right? It would be very irresponsible for me to say, uh, given all the data that's out there, say, yeah, we're going to be, you know, we're going to overweight risk is what I would say, or we're going to take on more stocks than we should have because I, I think it's, you know, because the economy's great and the, it's America and we're always going to be great. <laughs> like it's just, it's really irresponsible, right? America is great, but it doesn't change the fact that valuations are very extreme. Right. And you're nine years into this cycle. Um, and there's a lot of other things too, which I won't go into, but there's a lot of other metrics and different economic indicators that it would say, yeah, you're probably in the later innings of this thing. Mm-hmm. You know? it, and, it, it's possible. We already topped in January. Right. We still haven't hit that and, high yet. Right. You know? right. Yeah, we, we, know, we know the bear market's coming. So Yeah. Um, so to your point, yeah, I do get prospects that come in the door though, and, and they, you know, like I said, they'll, they'll be near retirement. And they'll have 60, 70, 80 percent stock, and either they're self-managed, and that's just how they've always managed their money. In which case, it's a great thing they've gotten to me at this point because now I can help them preserve that before it's too late. Mm-hmm. And pre- by preserving that, I don't mean sitting in cash and embalming the money. I just mean taking a different approach. Mm-hmm. And then there's other people who do come from other advisors, and they've just not had the conversation. Like the advisor just does not seem to be concerned, and they're just it's kind of business as usual. So whatever they were doing five and ten years ago, they're still doing today. Oh my god! Well, that's that'd be a big red flag. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, and it's like what? Ha- so you've worked thirty years for your entire life, and you've saved, and you've sacrificed vacations, and you didn't buy this car, you didn't do that to save this money, and you're gonna. You're gonna try, try to like what? You're gonna jeopardize, you know, your entire retirement to eke out a few more percent return right. for a couple of years. It's the risk return, the upside downside, and now it's just not a very favorable trade off right now. You're taking mm-hmm. on a lot of risk to get a little bit extra return. Mm-hmm. Today's podcast sponsor is Mitosynergy. Whether you're healthy and simply need more energy, or if you suffer from a chronic situation. Mitosynergy may help you improve your quality of life and take control of your discomfort. With a one-of-a-kind blend containing the patented copper complex, Mitosynergy may dramatically improve your energy and aid discomfort. For more information about Mitosynergy, visit their website, www.mitosynergy.com. That's M-I-T-O-Synergy.com. Or call them at 866-412-6486. So let me fire off a couple of more uh, a couple more questions. What's your perspective on the tech industry right now, and how does that fit in with uh, different stocks? And then also, can we talk about the banking industry as well? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I'll try. Okay, <laughs> I've never been in a bank, so there's some nuances. There. Well, I'm more but... so interested with uh, everything that happened in 2007, oh. and uh, you know, do we f- do you feel like uh, that's kind of been fixed, or what? How yeah, should how I'm... should people kind of be thinking about that? Yeah, in 07, 08, I mean, it was a, it was a it was a housing, it was a mortgage, it was a financial crisis, mm-hmm. right? And so you had, I mean, you had so many people just levered up on on basically all pyramided on top of housing. Mm-hmm. And the only way 
you would have avoided a major catastrophe is if housing prices would have continued to rise at the rate that they were rising mm -hmm. at that time, which is obviously impossible. It's unsustainable. So you had all this debt pyramided on the on top of housing, and the banks had a lot of exposure to it. Um, so that is not the same issue as today, right? That is healthier. I think the bank's balance sheets are healthier. There have been some reforms since then. So the risk is not the same, and in each crisis is not identical to the last one. Mm -hmm. And so I would say it's a little different issue than, than a banking crisis at this point. And how does te the tech industry fit into that? Because everything's so um, technology-focused right now. Everybody's yeah. so concerned about uh, um, innovative products and incorporating that into their business. And, yeah, I do the um, same thing. I rely on it so much, technology. Yeah, and so is that, uh, I mean, obviously it's a lucrative market to be in, mm -hmm. but uh, how, how do you see that progressing? From what perspective? I mean, you have AI, you have, you have oh. all these different advancements. I'm just wondering you know, what your take is on it. Yeah, I, th I mean, is it I, something that you feel like is going to um, kind of tank with everything else, or is it going to continue? to No, I think I mean things tend to correlate when you have risk. Everything tends to go down together. Risk assets tend to go down. So, like, I think three D printing has some really interesting applications, you know, which had, no one's talked about for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you kind of had a bubble in three D printing, probably I don't know, what we'll call it three to five years ago, okay. and those, those prices were astronomical, and they've come down a lot. So, anything tied to three D printing, and then it was crypto. Cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. anything tied to crypto. I mean, a company would announce that they're going to do something with crypto and the stock would like double overnight. Mm -hmm. That's a bubble. I mean, that kind of stuff is mania type mm -hmm. stuff. That um, stuff wavers so much. I couldn't yeah. believe how big. Yeah. One day it's like $5,000 or whatever and then yeah. it's down to 1000 Yeah. And that's common for anything new. It's very common, especially when you have a lot of speculation going on. And so on my website, I have a podcast about cryptocurrency, and I've probably written about it in the blog. So if you go to www.malotfa.com, yes. you I'm can there. go to the blog, and there's a lot of great commentaries. And at some point, I wrote about Bitcoin. And yeah, I tend to think that it was a bubble, and that bubble has popped. So, you know, that's, that's my view on it at this point. Not to say that there isn't going to be use for Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies in the future, but there's some... There's some technical issues I have with, with just what a currency is that I've written about. So yeah. yeah, and this is great. So I'm on your website right now, and underneath videos and podcasts, um, there are a lot of really nice resources here. So if you're looking for additional uh, information, I'm obviously speaking to you, the listener. If you're looking for additional financial uh, guidance or information, um, there's resources on Ken's website. Uh, yeah, and the big one, if you go to blog, I write... Um, any you know, one to three times a month. Okay. And I write about a lot of different things, mostly you know, economic and financial or investment related. And you'll find a lot of my views there and interesting current events and a kind of an interesting take on a lot of those things that you probably aren't hearing elsewhere. Cool. Yeah. yeah. What's your take on apps and websites that do automatic investing? Yeah, like the robo-advisor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was... Um, Again, like I said, there's a lot of people with ten or $20,000, younger people just starting off, and they don't know where to turn. And honestly, I think that might, maybe it's a better option than going to, like I said, I know a lot of younger people who end up going to like an insurance agent because they know a buddy that works for a, a very large insurance firm. I won't say the name, but, you know, I see a lot of my friends that have worked with these folks, and they get sold these insurance policies they really don't need. So I think... You know, they might be better off using a robo-advisor type thing. Now, I haven't looked at a while at the robo-advisors in detail, so I don't know what they're providing as far as planning and the projections. I do wonder, like, uh, back in February, 
we had kind of a little mini flash crash on a Friday or some someday we had a sharp drop in the market hmm. and from what I understand um, at least one of the robo advisors kind of halted all trading activity because it couldn't it, for I don't know I don't know again I don't know the details but hmm. basically you couldn't redeem your money or sell if you wanted to so there the pro the problem with the robo advisors that I see is that it hasn't been tested in an adverse environment yet because they've all come out since 2007. Yeah, for a long enough period. So they've only been around. And same with indexing. You've got to be careful with indexing because it's worked very well for nine years. But we know how that works when things go south. So with the robo-advisors, it just hasn't been tested through extreme you know, adverse mar market environments yet. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to see how those things do when you get a 8% flash crash in a day. And when everyone is redeeming ETFs, because these things all just trade on ETFs, exchange traded funds. So if you have everyone rushing for the exits, I don't know what that looks like in a robo advisor platform yet. You know, if you have everyone trying to sell and there are no bids to buy, you know, there's going to be no liquidity in that market. So I, 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 I'm curious to see when we actually get a real bear market, mm -hmm. what, what those do and how yeah. they hold up. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some risk there, I think. Do we want to talk about Warren Buffett at all? you want whatever you want to talk about <laughs> i'll talk about you know anything <laughs> i'll sit here all day with what's you. going on with that guy is he just going to work until oh, i don't know until that, the end of he's time got his successors lined up right <laughs> i'll tell you one thing though so he he is sitting on records amount of cash right now okay and that tells you something so warren buffett's famous quote or he's got a lot of them but one of them is uh be fearful when others are greedy and greedy only when others are fearful Interesting. I love that. That sums up, like, see, Warren Buffett, the opposite of me, can sum up so much in one sentence. I need a <laughs> lot of sentences, as you can tell. He's amazing. So that, but that sentence just tells you so much. That tells you almost everything you need to know about investing, right? It, when prices are high, you know, don't be chasing it. Or just because returns have been really good for nine years, don't be chasing them higher. Say it one more time for a little Yeah, time. the quote is, be fearful when others are greedy, and greedy only when others are fearful. I love that. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's one, yeah, it's wonderful. So, here, so actions speak louder than words. He says he's not that worried about market valuations, right? He's been asked on CNBC, and he doesn't see any issues. He's sitting on a record amount of cash. I think it's like $111 billion of cash right now because <laughs> he cannot find anywhere to deploy it. He can't find investments that satisfy his criteria. And he's a value investor. He's a yes. guy looking to buy great companies with great management at a fair price. Right. So the fact that he's sitting on a, over $100 billion of cash tells you he can't find that because everything is inflated right now. So that's that. Th there you go. There's a legend of finance that's telling you the same thing I'm telling you. Just mm -hmm. He actually has billions of dollars behind it. <laughs> and that's kind, of, that's kind of my general feeling right now is, uh, um, you know, not to invest is to kind of stack, stockpile that cash and to wait for um, the market to kind of take a dip. and. And I don't know if that's really the right um, mentality to have. Um, well, I mean, what you're talking about is market timing. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the downside to market timing, the risk to it, is that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Or I'm wrong. We're all wrong. Mm -hmm. And the market goes on for another couple of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, markets have been expensive for a good couple of years already. Right, so you if you would have taken that strategy two years ago, you would have missed out on an immense gains. Right, for the next for these beautiful last few years. gains. Yeah, so and beautiful. a lot of people did that. Right, <laughs> you know, um, so that's the downside. You have to be comfortable being wrong mm -hmm. for a period of time. When all your buddies and everyone's at a cocktail party saying, oh, "I bought Tesla and I'm I'm making a ton of money," or "I bought crypto and I'm making a ton of money," or Apple or whatever, you name the stock. 
That's always oh, I was so depressed when Tesla and Facebook were starting out because I had no money at the time. Yeah. And I just, I saw all the potential and everything in the news was how Tesla was going to fail, how Facebook, uh, could, you know, right. uh, they're just, uh, they just went public and they're like, nobody had any support for either one of those companies. And I was like, I could just see the future for those two. And I was like, right. oh, where, how can I get money to put into both of these yeah. companies? Yeah. I'm yeah. so disappointed I couldn't do it. Yeah, you always have those. You have the ones you you have the ones you hold on to that you wish you didn't, and you have the ones you don't buy that you wish you did. Mm-hmm. That always happens. Yeah. Would you think of Apple hitting a trillion dollars? Yeah, it's it's wild. It's great. Usually, it's you know. I mean, usually it's been a bad sign for companies when they hit these major milestones. So they're not, they're not the first company to hit a trillion dollars. It was some Chinese company, and then they lost $800 billion. So, I mean, not saying Apple's going to do that because it's a very different company. But, I mean, so now the question, so for someone who, the right question is, okay, do I buy Apple now? And it's like, do you think it's going to go from a trillion to two trillion? Or how long will it take to do that, right? It's like, again, we can look at the past returns and extrapolate that in the future, or we can acknowledge that, yeah, the next five years may not look like the last five. So again, I'm not long or short Apple or saying to buy or sell it. I'm just, these are the things I look at and, mm-hmm. and consider. But it's exciting. And it's, you know, at least it's a company that I think is deserving of it because, I mean, look around the room here. I'm seeing all Mac. We got, mm-hmm. I mean, it's what brilliant products and what a great job they've done. And they actually make money. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of these companies that have extreme valuations that don't make any money, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's like the 2000, like everything was valued based on how many clicks you had on your website or eyeballs on your website with no revenue. Mm-hmm. You know, Apple's actually a respectable company. So. Well, and it's interesting to look at them as a company because you had Steve Jobs, um, which created a lot of innovation, I feel like, within that brand. And then Tim Cook that then uh, took it over and kind of made everything a little bit more boring, yeah. um, in my opinion. Yeah, could and, be. Yeah, how do you replace this? Yeah. And I know that's, uh, you know, everybody has their own opinion on it, but I would say the product of Apple, for me as a user, I've lost a lot of excitement in it. And, oh, is that right? Uh, I've also, overall, I feel like the quality of their product isn't, is isn't really Stay going uh, it's kind of right? more stagnant see it's, and you guys would know because of the industry you're in you actually yeah. use the products for what they're capable of right i don't i'd like to so see that, i'd like to see i'd like users. to see something more yeah. from them um and it's like they're just kind of happy with the status quo right yeah. now in my opinion well it's tough to constantly innovate and, and to your question again about the reason why anytime you get these big companies that hit these major milestones well they've done it because they've had so much growth in the mm-hmm. past but look at I mean, look at companies that have been around forever that are, like, really nothing anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, it, everyone always gets disrupted. Well, and, and, you know, look, I mean, at my, look at Microsoft uh, look, in the period of time where their well, look at GE. market share really... Yeah, GE is another was, a, I mean, that's a yeah. behemoth. I mean, that was, like, the Apple of its day. Right. Look at GE. I mean, the, the, the Detroit Motor Companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, look at Lehman Brothers mm-hmm. in 08. I mean, that company was around for 100-some years, I think, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, there's always people out there to grab your market share and there's always people that are going to be younger smaller more nimble you know more creative you know so you just never know where that's going to come and that's funny that you use those words because when we were starting so productions is in its fifth year right now so we're a relatively young company yeah and when we were starting out, uh, those were some of the words that I told Sam, that's our advantage. Yeah. Is that yeah. we're young, 
we're quick, we're nimble. Yeah. Um, you know, we're cr- you creative. Got high energy. Yeah, we're able to do yeah. things. We're able to move faster. And my wife was working for a large corporation at the time, okay. um, and I could just see how slowly things moved within that organization. It, it's, it took three months just for things to go all the way to the top and then come back down, and then t- for them to get an answer and then to move forward. It's yeah. like. Well, we can do that in a day. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> we can do that, that in a half hour. Yeah, it's exciting. That's a huge advantage. Oh, it's, and it's so much more satisfying to be yeah. a part of that than to be big part of some uh, like some big bureaucratic machine. Right. You know, it's better for your clients because you can give tailor whatever you need to them. Right. You know, the, and so the firm I, I'm in the same position. Yeah. So the firm I worked with in Chicago was a very large wealth management firm. Okay. You know, we managed like I don't know 12 billion. It's, it was with an accounting firm, so it was one of the largest wealth management groups with an accounting firm. Okay. But, you know, the whole firm had 2,500 people and the wealth management group had 130. <laughs> but you can, you can imagine the bureaucracy that goes on. Like, yes. Even on the wealth management side, if a decision had to be made in a portfolio, it goes through multiple committees, it's got to get approved by partners. I mean, it's, it's not a nimble situation. Right. Whereas now, you know, me, I mean, I can act in seconds mm-hmm. if I need to. You know, there's, there is no big bureaucratic machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's exciting to be a part of. And, and I think clients benefit a lot from that. Because when you have, when you manage by committees or you run a large company, everything is consensus. So consensus is really just the average of people's good and bad opinions, right? Because if everyone's voting on something, you always kind of find this compromise in the middle. So you never have any um, conviction, and that's where, I, that's where it's I, always an average. But that's where I feel like Apple is right now. Yeah, is it's be. like before they had Steve Jobs, who was so convicted yeah. to move in this innovative direction and say, it, it, listening to that man talk, and I, from what I hear, he was an asshole, blah, blah, blah. People hated working for him. Um, but he was so convicted yeah. with uh, um, the way that he thought and yeah. the way that he saw the world sure. that he wasn't interested in kind of like picking up these other ideas. Yeah. It was, he was just driving forward and with, he was right. with his mindset. Obviously, he was right. Yeah. Now, I guess you could have a lot of convictions and be wrong, and that's sure. dangerous. Sure. <laughs> if you're not going to yeah. listen to anyone around you, I yeah. guess that could be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was a special person. Yeah, uh, I'm not but, sure, you know, everybody's no. I mean, jobs, there, yeah, he was special. I mean, he created a market. There was no demand for an iPhone before an iPhone came along. He created the demand because he created something that we didn't even know we wanted or needed. Mm-hmm. And once we had it, we had to have it. Or once it was there, we had to have it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's same with my business too. It's like it, that's, you know, I, it was a great firm I worked with and great people. But you know, I have certain convictions about the market at different periods of time. And right now, my conviction is I'm very worried. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't operate in a firm where we were kind of just doing the average of everyone's good and bad opinions. I need to be able to implement this view into the portfolios and do what I feel is right for my clients based on my convictions. Mm-hmm. I can't compromise those convictions or those beliefs or principles because we have so many people in the firm and we're just trying to please everybody mm-hmm. because I don't think that's great. I don't think that's a great way to operate. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, there's some advantage to that. To circle back to your question on the Apple thing, one thing I just, I came across a stat, and I I think it's from like 1972 or some point, but from 1972 or whatever year that was up through, you know, now, if you bought the largest holding in the S&P 500, which is the index for the Mm -hmm. U.S. stock market, if you bought the largest holding, I think you made like 972%. (laughs) Wait, hold on. But if you bought the whole basket of the S&P 500, I want to say it was like 10,000%. Holy crap. So there's, the answer to, there's an answer to your question is, does it make sense to buy the largest guy in the S&P 500? 
And I would say, yeah, over a long period of time going forward, probably not. It's probably going to underperform just that broad basket of companies. Yeah. So, yeah. As we're talking. So just a, um, a, an additional question in, in thinking about uh, these convictions. Within a company, do you feel like, and this is something I hope will bring uh, some value to our listeners, is what's your perspective on taking and listening to the criticism from a team or from coworkers um, and then incorporating that into your um, plan as you move forward as a leader yeah. of a company? And can a company have multiple leaders and still have that focus, you know, that conviction that, you know, this one person has, seems to have? I don't know. I mean, I've seen, uh, I've seen it all. I've seen, um, I think it depends on the people and it depends on what their specialty is. I think it's good to have people who specialize. So if you have, you know, two people doing the exact same thing and they have opposing views, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if people, you know, if people are really good at what they do and they, they have that focus, then obviously you can have two leaders working together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, every, every leader is different. Like you said, Steve Jobs is one way, and Elon may be another way, and you know I'm certainly different, I'm sure. But you have to, I mean, everyone I think has to realize that, especially in this industry, like you may be wrong. Everyone has biases, mm-hmm. and you have to acknowledge that. And you, you know, you see, you have to have healthy skepticism of what you think you know, because mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things you don't know, and you don't know that you don't know it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a healthy skepticism and you always have to be looking for the counter argument. So if you're going to have a conviction about something, you better know what the opposite argument is and know it well and be able to argue it better than that person. Because you need to understand where your weaknesses may be or where your gaps may be, your holes, and you need to fill those holes. And that, that's great advice. I, I think that's uh, something that people can latch on to. Is, uh, so if you do have this conviction, understand the opposing um, yeah. point of view. Yeah. Um, and I think that will help you understand whether or not it's a, um, you know, something that is actually uh, good and positive or if you're heading down a path that's uh, going to lead to destruction. Right, right. <laughs> so. Yeah, you have to have respect for other people and, yeah. and know that other people have different experiences and expertise and you need to tap into that, mm-hmm. especially if you're a leader of a company with multiple employees. Mm-hmm. You know, there's hopefully you're hiring good people. So you, why are you hiring good people if you're not going to use them? Right, <laughs> you know? right. So, Is there anything else uh, that you feel like we should touch on or talk about? Let's see. Well, I guess I can wrap it up, sure. right? So I guess the, the idea is, again, my goal is to help clients become and remain financially independent, right? Regardless of what the market may hold for us in the future, mm-hmm. right? That's the idea, is to, you know, insulate clients in various market environments. So that requires, one, it requires a good understanding of history, and it requires the use of financial planning and projections. So you can kind of stress test all your, your, your goals, right? Your mm-hmm. retirement, stress test it against a bear market, stress test it against higher inflation, stress test it against a significant healthcare needed retirement. There's all sorts of risks and threats to our financial independence that you need to understand how those can affect your retirement. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, and then come up with strategies for mitigating some of that. And so that, you know, I, I am concerned about where the market is currently. You know, none of this is obviously investment advice. It's all very just kind of general for education purposes. Mm-hmm. Every, everyone is truly unique and different. There's different circumstances. So what may be right for you may not be right for someone else, and it's probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to have someone who really understands, you know, your, your circumstances and your biases and your, you know, risk tolerance and all sorts of different things. Um, so... Yeah, I appreciate the time. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we really thank you for coming on and uh, yeah. sharing a lot of your financial wisdom with us. And uh, 
So one thing we like to t- talk yeah. about on the podcast is something that you're doing personally or professionally to cultivate growth within your own life. Is there something that you'd like to share with us uh, and our listeners? Um, could be professional, could be yeah. personal. Mm. So something that uh, yeah that you're actively working on right now, and and what are you doing? What type of steps? So like not not my golf game. <laughs> I mean, it could be your golf game. You're uh, like, so I'm getting lessons. Yeah, go to uh, the range. It is improving. Yeah, yeah, it's still ugly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, um, I've always been an avid reader. And I've because of the business, and I have three kids <laughs> at home. It, it's harder, um, but I'm still trying to read. So I, I listen to podcasts when I can, um, and I read. And it, it's not always economic related, although that's the most most of it is mm-hmm. economic or economic history. Um, so there's some authors and some podcasts I like to listen to to cultivate personal growth. And like I said, you don't know what you don't know. And you have, you know, a lot of people have gone through a lot of great experiences that you can leverage off of and learn from. So I try to, you know, I try to grow personally that way. So whether it's a more effective businessman or better family man or, you know, just getting through life's successes and challenges gracefully and, you know, different things. So. And is there something that you do uh, or a way that you look at these challenges to help you gracefully overcome them? No, I don't. No, that's a t- <laughs> I need to think about that a bit because there's probably a really good answer there. And I, I, I think about it a lot, but I don't have a, a nice, succinct answer for you. So, All right. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's, everything is about breaking things up in baby steps, you know, every day. So, like, my, my biggest challenge right now, of course, is I'm, you know, I'm about a year and a half into this business, right? So, yeah. as you know, as small business owners, that's that's a big focus of yes. mine. And then you've got three kids at home. So yes. yeah, just every day doing the, doing the right things and um, following your processes and, and breaking everything off in small chunks. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you have any book recommendations about economics? Uh, about, yeah, so a good one uh, that I really like, there's two. Uh, one is written by James Grant, and it's called, I think it's called The Forgotten Depression of 1921. 1921 or 1920. It's a phenomenal book um, because there was actually a great, like there was a depression that began after World War I. It's a depression you never hear about it though because the response to that crisis was very different than how government started responding to crises in the Great Depression and ever since. So it's very interesting to learn from that period of history. One, you learn about how, what was going on that qualified it as a depression, and then you learn about the response and how we got out of it. So if, if you're into economic or economic history, that's a great book. Um, there's another one actually by David Stockman, The Great Deformation. That's another good one too. So that one you really, again, it's, it's focusing on these things that are really time-tested that, um, as far as, you know, as economics and markets go. So I think it's good to learn from history. It doesn't always repeat. It's not always identical, but it does rhyme. So I think if you... you if you want to know more about economics. Now, that one's a pretty heavy read. That's a big book. It's a, that's a pretty heavy read. The, uh, the, the Forgotten Depression is a pretty light read, and James Grant's a brilliant author, and he, that's probably a little bit breezier. These two if you're books, into, these if you're two into books those. probably aren't uh, um, bedtime stories. No, no, so probably not. <laughs> maybe after dinner with a cocktail or something. Yeah, it says if you like that kind of stuff, <laughs> sure. you know, which I do, but I'm rare. It's that way. That's cool. Well, we, we hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we're very grateful to have Ken in the studio today. Uh, again, you can check out uh, Ken online at malottefa.com, and that is M-E-L-O-T-T-E-F-A.com. Until next week, prepare for awesome. Awesome.